Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So Mark is an interesting book. First, one through ten, ten chapters, three years of Jesus' life. The word immediately, I counted it 32 times. It, things just move. Then everything slows down in chapter 11. The last six chapters from chapter 11 to 16, eight days. So 10 chapters for three years, six chapters for eight days. Everything slows down a lot. And that's where we are now. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. We looked at this back in April on Palm Sunday. So I'm just going to recap the story. We're not going to dive into detail with it um, this morning. Jesus, very, uh, it's a deliberate demonstration of his claim to kingship. It's subtle, but it's intentional. He's walked for three years, and for the last couple of miles entering Jerusalem, he, cho- he chooses to ride a-, a donkey, and that's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. That passage is behind me. It's his way of saying, I'm your king, and I'm coming to claim my throne. Now, remember, Jesus is traveling with his 12 disciples, but there's also a larger crowd with him. This is the days leading up to Passover, which is one of the three times a year when the uh, Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate. So there's a larger crowd with him, whether it's hundreds or thousands, I don't know, but it's a larger crowd. And they seem to pick up on what Jesus is communicating. They put their coach down in front of him. They cut branches and put those branches down in front of him, which is something you would do for royalty as they entered the city. They're saying things like, blessed is, uh, blessed is, is, the, is the Lord. Blessed is the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, uh, the, the coming of our, the kingdom of David. So they seem to be understanding what Jesus is saying, at least the people who are traveling with him. Within, once they get in Jerusalem, that doesn't seem to be the case. So that's Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in, intentional but subtle, I'm your king. And then on Monday, he does two things, they're called these two prophetic actions, two actions that have a spiritual or symbolic meaning. He gets up early in the morning and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree that has leaves on it and he goes up to the fig tree looking for figs to eat, there are none, and he curses it. Only time we see that in the Bible, Jesus cursing, uh, using his power to, to destroy something. And so he curses this fig tree and Mark gives this interesting note. It was not the season for figs. And then Jesus goes to the temple and, he's, and, and when he gets there, he cleanses the court of the Gentiles. You can see that in the picture behind me. That was the only area of the temple where non-Jews were allowed to go. And during this Passover festival, they had set up, the, the religious leaders allowed money changers to set up tables there. So like all the guys that were traveling with Jesus had foreign currency and they needed local currency to pay the temple tax. So these guys were providing that service. Uh, people who traveled with Jesus, for instance, they needed to, to buy animals so they could sacrifice. There were certain animals that you had to sacrifice for the Passover. And they had guys that were buying and selling livestock for sacrifices. And Jesus goes in and he turns over those tables and he drives out the, the buyers and the sellers and to explain what he's doing, he says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of robbers. And that upsets the religious leaders when they hear what he's doing. They, they start looking for a way to kill him, but they're afraid of the crowd. And then Jesus leaves. And so that's Sunday and Monday. We're going to pick up on Tuesday morning in verse 20. 
In the morning, as they went along, so this is Jesus and his disciples, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. That was the one that he cursed. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they, believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. We're going to pause there. So this is one of those instances, we saw this a lot earlier in Mark, where he kind of makes a sandwich, where he tells a story and he, he breaks it apart and sticks another story in between. So we've got fig tree, temple, fig tree, which means we're supposed to understand them together. And again, both of those actions, the fig tree and the, and the temple are symbolic. He, Jesus actually performs them, but they're communicating something beyond the action. So Jesus, or excuse me, Peter sees this tree and miraculously, it's withered in one day. In 24 hours, it's gone from a healthy tree with leaves on it to withered from the root. And he points that out to Jesus, says, look, that tree is withered. And we might expect Jesus to explain what happens. He doesn't. But for our benefit, what's going on there, again, there's the, the, the symbolic action. The fig tree is the temple. So Jesus goes up to this fig tree. It's not the season for figs, but if a tree has, if a fig tree has leaves on it, before the leaves sprout, they're these little early figs is what they call them. They're not great to eat, but you can eat them. And so if you see a tree with leaves, it should have those early figs on it, and it doesn't. So it looks like it should have fruit, but it doesn't. And the temple is very similar. There's a lot of activity going on, but there's no life. The cursing of the fig tree is a symbol or it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for what's going to happen to the temple through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then ultimately 40 years later, when the Romans destroy the temple, it's God is rejecting what's going on there because there's no fruit. There's a lot of activity. People are making sacrifices and making offerings, but there's no real activity. There, there's, excuse me, there's no real, there's no life. There's just a bunch of movement. It's a tree with leaves, but without fruit. And Jesus is saying, God, God's done with that. And, and, and then he, it seems almost random. He starts talking about prayer. Why is he doing that? He says to Peter, well, if you have faith, if you trust God, then you can do impossible things as well. That's that picture of a mountain being thrown into the sea. You can do impossible things as well. And then he gives two conditions for answered prayer, faith and forgiveness. We'll look at those in more detail in a minute, but just for now, he gives these two conditions for answered prayer. But again, what does that have to do with a temple and a fig tree? I think what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to set the stage for his disciples and for his followers to say, this, this building that's been central for all of your life, this has been the place for all of your life and the life of your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents going back. This has been the place where you people have come to meet God. Three times a day, there's corporate prayer in this place. It's not going to be that way moving forward. What I see Jesus doing is he's, is he's, take, he, he's reminding them the importance of relationship over ritual. What matters is trust, faith in God. What matters is right relationship with others, so you have to forgive. And it's more important than the, getting the ritual right, performing the right sacrifice, offering the right animal. Those things had a place, but that place is, is fading away. And there's going to be a new emphasis 
And we see this in, later in the New Testament. The, the, the church, uh, we at collectively, we're the new temple. It's not, a, it's not a building. God dwells with his people. And then even individually, we're the temple. God dwells within us individually as sons and daughters. And I think Jesus is beginning to lay that groundwork for the disciples, which would be a big shift for them because the temple had always been central. Verse 20, what are we at? 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. So now Jesus and the disciples, they've gone from where they were staying in Bethany. Now they're in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So Jesus gets back to the temple area and the leaders of the temple come up to him. They're basically saying, what, who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the right? We, we, we sanctioned all of this. We sanctioned the money changers. We sanctioned these guys buying and selling animals. That's important. If people can't do that, then they can't worship properly. Who do you think you are to come in and disrupt all of that? We're the ones in charge and we said it was okay. And as we've seen, the religious leaders weren't sincere in their question. They've already decided that Jesus is a troublemaker and he needs to go. They're looking for a reason to do it, but they're afraid of the people. So I think what they're thinking is, well, maybe he'll say something that will turn the crowds against him. But Jesus knows that. And so he doesn't answer. He comes back to them and says, well, why don't y'all tell me something? John the Baptist, was his ministry from God or not? And you can see their lack of sincerity because they're not willing to answer the question. They have an answer. They're just not willing to say it because they're looking at the, the implications either way. Well, if we say John the Baptist ministry is from God, well, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And so that is implicitly affirming Jesus. Well, we don't want to do that. But if we say he's not from God, well, we're, we're afraid of all the people because they think he's a prophet. These guys are the religious leaders. They're unwilling to make a decision publicly. They're not willing to stake a claim and say, this is what we think. 
We actually do believe John is from God. And so we need to wrestle with who you are or we don't. And it doesn't matter what the crowds say. We think he was a false prophet and we need to let people know so they're not led astray. They're unwilling to do either of those things. And so Jesus says, well, then I'm not gonna tell you where I come from either, where, where my, whether my ministry is from God or not. And then he tells a parable. And remember, a parable is a story taken from real life that has a spiritual meaning embedded in it. Real life background would be an absentee landowner. So you own a, a tract of land, but you don't work it. And so you would allow farmers, you'd rent it out to farmers who would work it and you would be paid a percentage of the crop, 20 to 30% of the crop would, they would give to you as rent. And so in this parable, the owner is God, the farmers are the religious leaders and the, the, mess, the, the servants are messengers or prophets that God has sent to his people for years and years and years who have tended to be rejected by the religious leaders. So you've got, again, in the parable, you have the owner sending servants to collect what is his, which is rent for the property. And the farmers, rather than paying what they owe, they're mistreating and even killing the servants. And so the owner says, well, I'm gonna send my son. That's obviously Jesus. They will respect him. And in the parable, they don't. They kill him too. That's a, that's a picture for Jesus of what's gonna happen to him at the end of the week. This is Tuesday. He's dead on Friday. So in just a couple of days, this, this parable, the, the future part of it will come true. And, and Jesus says, like, what do, you, what do you think the landowner, what do you think he's going to do if you kill his son? Do you really think he's going to give you the, 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 the land? Do you really think he's going to do that? That's going to be the result of you killing his son? No, he's going to kill y'all. He's going to reject you and he's going to give his field to others. And again, that's a picture of what happens as you read the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament, this shift of the people of God from being exclusively Jewish to a Jewish Gentile mix to then majority Gentile. That's, that's this picture of the kingdom of God that moving from, again, being just the, the province of the Jewish people to becoming, again, a majority Gentile uh, movement. And then that Jesus summarizes the parable with this quote from Psalm 118, the stone, that's Jesus, the builders, that's the religious leaders have rejected. It's become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone you laid in a foundation. It's the most important block of a building. Everything else was aligned to that cornerstone. And he's saying, that's me. Y'all are rejecting me. That's going to be his death. And the father is going to exalt me. He's going to make me the cornerstone, that most important peace. He's talking about his resurrection and his exaltation. And the religious leaders know he's talking about them. And again, they continue to look for a way to kill him. And you may be thinking, well, I can see how he gets crucified. You know, I mean, he's just in a, in a handful of days, he's done some very provocative things and said some provocative things. And I can see how that leads to his death on, on Friday. But what does that have to do with me? I'm not really a, I'm not a Jewish religious leader. What, where's the, what's the landing spot for that? I want you to think in terms of that fig tree. That's not who we want to be. We don't want to be the fig tree that has leaves but no fruit. We don't want to be the temple that has a lot of activity, but there's no life. And it's really easy to fall into those patterns, into that way of living. It's easy for us to stay busy. 
even with religious things, even spiritual things, but not actually be producing fruit. Again, it's easy for us to have leaves so there'd be the appearance of life. But if somebody were to inspect, they'd say there's actually no life here at all. And that's, again, that's an easy dynamic for us to fall in. So it's just a, a couple of minutes that we have left as we're kind of thinking through this. That's my, the question I want to ask for you, not in a condemning way at all. But as you look at your life right now, September 11th, look, looking at just the state of your life, would you say there's fruit or, or not? Like what, what, what would you say? What is, what is fruit? It's one of those tricky words in the Bible. It's never explicitly defined. We know it when we see it, but there's not a straight definition given. There's two ways I think of fruit. One is, what is the Holy Spirit doing in me? And that's the character of Jesus. He's wanting to form within me the character of Jesus that's listed in Galatians 5. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And we want to be growing in those qualities in increasing measure. We've talked about this before. You're not going to see growth from Monday to Tuesday. And you're probably not going to see growth from this week to next week. But you should be able to see some growth from May to September. And certainly from last year to this year. If the Holy Spirit's working in you and you're intentionally, and this is part of it, you're intentionally asking and cultivate this fruit within me. I've said before, I think it's helpful to focus on one, not all nine. And just say, I, I want to grow in this area. I want to become more like Jesus in this area. I, I'm not patient. I'm, if I'm honest, when I get squeezed, what comes out of me is a torrent of anger. That's not okay. And so, Holy Spirit, I need you working in me, whether that's patience or self-control or whatever that is. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the angry guy or the angry girl. And so, I want to grow. In the, and again, it's not going to be overnight, but over time. And then there's, there, there's the results of our work. What are we actually, what's our life producing? It's what the Holy Spirit's doing through us, through our words, through our actions, through our energy, through our effort. Colossians 1.10, Paul prays that we would bear fruit in every good work. And so this is, it's, it's that, uh, if you ever read Henry Cloud's integrity book, it's, it's the wake that we leave behind. When you look back at your life, what do you see? both in terms of your influence on other people and the tasks that you're doing. Is it a trail of broken bodies? Is it people who are encouraged? Is it, is it fruit that lasts? Is it a pile of money? Is it a full calendar? Like what are the things when you look back over your shoulder? What, what's the wake that you're leaving behind? What is your life producing? And don't hear that again as, in any way as a condemnation. John 15 says that if we abide in Jesus, we will produce fruit. It's, it's guaranteed. That's what he does. He's the vine and we're the branches. And as long as we stay connected to him, then we will produce fruit. So if you look at your life and you're not seeing fruit, it doesn't mean go work harder. What it means, that's, that, that's just, that's the temple. That's just more activity that doesn't necessarily lead to more life. My father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations, a place where people are encountering and engaging God. And that's the key for us. Am I, am I staying connected? Am I remaining? Am I 
abiding. And that flows straight into what Jesus taught about prayer. Prayer being the primary way, the primary means that we stay connected to the Lord. Remember the fruit is what, it's the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit in us and through us. And prayer is the way that we stay connected and access him. Jesus gives us two. And we said when we, when we looked at marriage and divorce a couple of weeks ago, if you're going to look at a topic, you need to look at everything the Bible says about a topic. So we're going to look at prayer, but we, can, we don't have time to look at everything the Bible says about prayer. So just these two conditions, faith and forgiveness. We'll do forgiveness first. At first glance, that doesn't seem it almost it seems kind of disagreeable. It's, it's conditional. Well, if I don't forgive others, then God doesn't forgive me. And we think, well, I thought, God, I thought it was grace, and I thought it was mercy, and I thought forgiveness was unconditional. I thought it was a gift, and this sounds like it's wrapped up in what I do. Remember that Jesus is talking to his followers, to people who've already are already in right relationship with him. The best parable to read to understand this statement is uh, Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. You remember it, a king is going to settle accounts and a servant comes to him who owes him 10,000 bags of gold. Your Bible might say 10,000 talents. It's an astronomical amount of money. A talent is 6,000 days worth of work. So you're talking about 60 million days worth of salary. Never, you can't pay it back. I, never. And the servant throws himself on the mercy of the king and says, have mercy on me. And the king says, okay. And he wipes this massive debt away. And then this servant who's just been forgiven this massive amount finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii, three months worth of salary, a hundred days worth of work. And says, pay me back. And the guy says, I don't have it. Have mercy on me. And the servant says, no. And then word gets back to the king that this guy who he forgave did not forgive his fellow servant. And he says, what, what are you doing? You received mercy from me. Why would you not extend mercy to your fellow servant? And he throws him in jail and says, you're going to stay there until you pay the whole thing off. And the punchline, the last line in that parable, Jesus says, and so will your father treat you in heaven if you don't forgive people from your heart. The parable is told in response to Peter's question, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, 77. Or your Bible, some translations, 70 times seven. Either way, the, it's every time. That's what he's saying. You have to forgive them every time they sin against you. There's not a point at which you don't. We're the people who owe 60 million days worth of salary to the Lord. And he's forgiven us of all of those sins. And so when people vary, it's not saying that when people sin against us, it's not real. It's not even saying it's not significant. It's just a reminder, hey, you've been forgiven much. And so you need to extend forgiveness to others. It's a, at some point we have to make a choice, which ecosystem or which economy are we going to live in? Are we going to live in an economy of mercy? Are we going to live in an economy of judgment? Or you could even say justice, where people are treated based on what they deserve versus mercy where we're not. Remember we talked about mercy last week, the withholding of punishment that we deserve. And if we want God to treat us mercifully, if we want to live in the ecosystem of mercy, then, then, we, then we have to. And that impacts the way we treat others. But if we're going to treat others based on how what their sins deserve, if we're going to say to somebody else, you've got to pay me back, then that pulls us out of this economy or this ecosystem of mercy. 
And God says, well, if, that, if that's how you want it to be, then that's how it's going to be. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. So if the way you're interacting with others is, you owe me, I'm holding a grudge, I'm holding you in judgment, you've removed yourself from the sphere of God's mercy. So forgiveness, that's one of the keys to answered prayer. As you're praying, and this has happened to all of you, I know, you've been praying and somebody's come to your mind. And most likely it's been frustrating for you because it's somebody that hurt you. And maybe you've even thought, well, I've already forgiven them. But they come back up and then the emotion is attached to it. And that's how you know. And what the Lord would ask you to do right then in that moment, forgive them again. I've already done, do it again. It's easy for us. We release people and then we bring them back. And that's all you're doing. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying they didn't hurt you. You're not saying that I want to be your best friend anymore. What you're saying is I'm not holding you in judgment. You owe me three months salary. I'm not going to make you pay. That's between you and the Lord. I'm releasing you to him. That's all you're doing. Simple, not easy. Second thing Jesus says is prayer. This is one of the misused, abused verses in the Bible. If you just believe anything you ask for, then it's yours. We treat prayer as a transaction. We go into the God store and we see what's on the shelf. Healing, salvation, protection for my kids, favor at work. And then we look in our wallet and we see how many belief bucks we have. And then what can I buy? based on my faith dollars. And then I take those things to the cash register and say, God, here's how much I've got. And so here's what I can buy for it. It's a complete misunderstanding of prayer. It reduces prayer to a transaction. Another place where Jesus talks about throwing mountains moving, he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it's the smallest thing they've got. You see the picture there. You can say to a mountain move and it will. What we do when we approach God in prayer is we make our faith the controlling dynamic, the controlling variable. It's the, the most important thing in this equation is how much faith I have. And when Jesus talks about mustard seeds and mountains, what he's doing is he's actually removing that pressure. You still have to trust God 100%. That's what faith is. But what we wind up doing is we're trusting in our faith. We have faith in our faith. Not faith in the goodness and the greatness of God. The goodness, God's willingness to act. The greatness, God's ability to act. And that's what Jesus is saying about mustard seeds and mountains. It doesn't take much to do a lot. Why? Because of the one you're trusting. Because he's good and because he's great. And that's what Jesus is trying, he's saying to us. We 100% have to trust him. But it's not about how much money you got in your pocket. This isn't a transaction where we're buying something from God. What he's looking for from us, again, is we've, gone, we've looked at every miracle in Mark. I know it's been you know, strung out over a year, but we've looked at every one of them. Most of those guys are not super impressive. And so when we think about faith, again, I think sometimes in our mind, kind of the bigger the thing we're asking for, Again, we start looking in our wallet and saying, do I have enough belief? I think we're probably going about it the wrong way. For many, just the fact that you're willing to approach, that's an expression of trust. The fact that you're willing to ask, 
that's an expression of trust. And then the Lord, he, he may lead you in a direction. And I think that kind of ties into this whole idea of the cornerstone. For most of us, we don't really think about faith until we want something. And then we say, do I have, again, we're in the store and do I have enough money? Faith is trust in, in God. Again, think about his goodness and think about his greatness. That's, you know, the blessing that you prayed for a long, long time. God is great. God is good. Both of those things are true. He's great. He's able to act. He's good. He's willing to act. And that trust, I think, is best, best built over time. Is Jesus my cornerstone? Is my life aligned with him? Is he my reference point? And there's an obedience aspect to that. I, want, I, I say this reverently. I think our faith grows as we test God. And again, I mean that in the most humble and reverent way. When God asks us to do something and we do that, and then we see, oh, he is trustworthy. Then, then our trust in him grows. Again, I don't think it's in this moment of crisis when you're praying for a big thing. And then you just try to make convince yourself through emotion or sheer force of your will that God can do it. I think if, to me, a, a healthier way of developing trust is to do so over time. Again, to, as we walk in obedience, as we say, Jesus, you're the cornerstone. So that means all of my life, you're going to be the reference point. So you're going to be the reference point for how I relate to my spouse, to my children. You're going to be my reference point for how I understand my singleness, my health. You're going to be the reference point for how I do my work and how I manage my money. You're going to be the reference point for what is okay in terms of my free time and entertainment. Like You're the reference point for all of those things. I want to align every element of my life, every area of my life. I want to align with you, my relationships, again, my work, my resources, all of those things. You're the cornerstone. You're the most important block in my life. And recognizing our tendency is to get those things out of alignment really quickly. Our tendency is to begin to look at the dominant values of our culture or even our own personal preferences and allow those things to become our reference point. There's an intentionality in saying, in kind of a coming back to Jesus to say, no, you're the reference point. You're the cornerstone. And as you live that way, God shows himself faithful. And your trust in him, it grows over time. And so then when the crisis comes and you're asking for the big thing, to use our old analogy, there actually is money in your back pocket. It's been that there've been the, the amount has been accruing over time. And it's a horrible analogy, but that's what's been happening for you. It's not all of a sudden in this crisis, can I work myself up to believe God to do this big thing? It's no, I've got months and years of walking with him. I know that he's great and I know that he's good. And so I can approach him as a father and say, this is what I'm bringing to you. I know that you're able to do this. I know you desire to work in the lives of your kids. And so I'm asking you to do that. All right, we have two minutes. Just one thing to round out that on prayer. Again, we don't have time to say everything there is to say about prayer. In John 14, Jesus talks about asking for, this is another misused verse. If, if you ask for anything in my name, then you're going to get it. 
And again, so we, that's why we all say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, it's abracadabra. Like, okay, I'm going to get that thing now because I said it. 1 John 5 says, this is our confidence. If we ask anything according to God's will, then we know that he hears us. To ask in Jesus' name, that, that's what that looks like. Again, it doesn't just mean I tack in Jesus' name on the end of whatever I want. It's to ask according to the character and the will of, of Jesus, who only did what he saw the Father doing. And, and again, that, the, the, the understanding comes over time of walking with him and beginning to be able to discern, well, what is his will? to have a sensitivity to his voice. What does he want in this situation? We always, the Gethsemane prayer to me is, is, one, is one of the best examples for us where Jesus says, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And again, as we mature in our relationship with him, that prayer piece matures for us. There's a willingness to, to say, this is, this is what I want. Ultimately though, I want what you want because what you want is best. But that's not, a, it's not a, a resignation that when we say that, it's not even like a, it's not a, a waffling on our own desires. It's a true submission and an acknowledgement that God is a good father. So this is what I want us to do. I want you to close your eyes if you would. And I want you to think about this question. And I want you to be honest. No false humility here. Just ask the Lord, is there fruit? Is there good fruit in my life? And you may be surprised by what he says. Is there good fruit? And you may want to even not take your life as a whole, but maybe you want to section it out. Is there good fruit in my relationships? Is there good fruit in my work? However you define that. Is there good fruit in my, with my resources? Is there good fruit in terms of my character? Our effort matters, but it's not primary. And so if there's conviction there, don't let your response be, well, I just got to do better. Let's think about what it looks like to abide more deeply, to stay more closely connected. You may want to ask this of the Lord. God, I want to, I want to be someone who bears good fruit in terms of my character, in terms of the results of my life, what's being produced in my life. So would you help me to do that? I want to remain. I want to abide. Would you show me what that looks like? For many of us, it looks like a deepening of our prayer life. It's a primary way that we stay connected. Remember fruits, what the Holy Spirit produces in and through us. So as you think about your own prayer life, maybe, maybe the prayer is something like this. God, would you take me deeper in prayer? Would you show me what it looks like to grow 
I do, God, I want my faith to grow. I want to trust you more fully and deeply. Would you help me to do that? God, I want to walk in right relationship with others. As much as it depends on me, I want to live at peace with everybody. That's Romans 12. It doesn't all depend on me, but some of it does. Would you give me grace to forgive and you fill in the blank, whoever you have a hard time releasing. God, as an expression of my faith and trust, I want to live my life aligned with the values of the kingdom and the king. Jesus, I want you to be my reference point. I don't want to just sing that you're the cornerstone. I want you to actually be the cornerstone of my life. So would you show me if there's a place where I've gotten out of alignment? And lead me back to truing my life up with you. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 